Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Over the past two decades, the gradual but steady rise of populist parties has transformed the political map of Europe. Now populist leaders across the continent, most from the right of the political spectrum, but some from the left, have either got their hands on the levers of power or are playing influential roles in opposition. What has caused this rise in populism in Europe and beyond, and what are its implications for liberal democracy and the future direction of the European Union? I'll be raising those questions and others today with our panel of guests. I'm joined in studio by our foreign affairs specialist, Ruan McCormack, on the line from Brussels by our Europe editor, Patrick Smith, and from Budapest by our Eastern European correspondent, Daniel McLaughlin. You're all very welcome. Ruan, uh, we should probably start by defining our terms. When we talk about a rise in populism, what do we mean by that word, populism? Well, it's a fuzzy and in some ways a problematic term, of course, and there's a lot of debate over what it means because it encompasses a wide range of disparate uh, parties and different different worldviews. Um, so it can include people on the left and right. It can include libertarians, pacifists, militarists, um, nationalists, you name it. I think what unites these groups and these parties under the, the single term are a set of common traits. And we can list some of them. So populists, for example, tend to position themselves as the voice of a monolithic unitary entity called the people. And this tends to be contrasted or put in opposition to uh, the elites who are deemed corrupt and malign in some way. Populists attack so-called pillars of that elite. So they attack journalists, they attack judges, they attack uh, bureaucrats um, and other members of so-called establishment, they speak of silent minorities, um, national humiliation, rigged systems. So if you think of the slogans we all know so well um, that have arisen in the last couple of years, think of, you know, make America great again in, in the United States. We are the people, which comes from Pegida in Germany, uh, take back control, the, the mantra of the Brexiteers. And this is our country, which was um, used by the National Front in France during the last election campaign. Generally, populists um, present themselves as outsiders. They present themselves as an insurgent force out to break up, uh, you know, it might be the duopoly of two ruling parties or the calcified elite that's been running a country for a very long time. Cass Muda, he's um, a US-based political scientist who's written a lot about populism. I think he has a really good, um, he presents a really good way of thinking about this. What he says is populism is a thin ideology. and he opposes, he puts this in contrast with a, a thick ideology such as nationalism or socialism. But a thin ideology is something that you can that can attach itself to these bigger ideas, nationalism, socialism, um, free market tierism, and, and so on. Um, and, you know, that's why we're, in it, we're able to bunch all of these very disparate groups under, under one umbrella. So you have, for example, the Law and Justice Party in Poland, which is a sort of a national, nationalist uh, religious um, organization. You have Gert um, Wilders in the Netherlands, who is anti-Islam, um, but also pro-gay rights and would in some ways have very little in common with um, the leadership in, in Warsaw. Then you have Spain's Podemos, which is has a sort of an anar- anarchist socialist worldview. So you get a sense of the, the really different backgrounds that these parties are coming to populism with. Now, what's wrong with any of this, you might say? What's wrong with speaking for the people? What's wrong with um, rejecting elites and, and being close to the voters? The problem is that is if you elevate this idea of the people above all else, if you insist on this really rigid idea of majoritarianism, 
then there are two things that tend to suffer. One is the rule of law and the other is the rights of minorities. And what we're seeing in places like Poland and Hungary today is how that's beginning to play out. And um, you mentioned there they can be from the right or the left. More often than not, they tend to come from the, the, the right of the political spectrum. Isn't that right? When we talk about populists in Europe, certainly we tend to be talking about the populist right more often than that wider conception of populism that I just mentioned. So parties such as Podemos tend not to be grouped or, um, you know, the left wing bloc led by Jean-Luc Mélenchon in, in France tends not to be grouped into this uh, populist wave we talk about. Um, you're right, we tend to think of the populist right, and we tend, by extension then, to attach that phenomenon in Europe with a wider phenomenon of the populist strongman more broadly. So think of people like Erdogan in Turkey or Putin in Russia or Duterte in, in the Philippines. This is seen as a sort of a global phenomenon dominated by the by the right. Now, the other thing I'd like to get a handle on before we delve a little bit deeper into the topic is what countries in the European context are, are we talking about here? I mean, there are quite a lot, actually, so we certainly won't get to mention them all. But, but Paddy, if I were to start with you, say say starting with, with Poland and heading west, could you give us a snapshot of which countries come to mind when we talk about a rise in, in populism? Well, I think, I think there's a, a phenomenon throughout, actually, um, the bulk of the European Union uh, in the rise of, of populist parties, particularly of, of the, the hard right. And I think it's important to say these are just not parties of, of the right that I'm talking about, but, but really very right-wing parties, including uh, many of them openly uh, fascist, and, and some of them even in the tradition of, of the Nazis, sort of street fighters like Golden Dawn and Jobbik in, in, in Hungary. And these parties have grown really quite significantly. Poland, you've talked about uh, law and justice. In, in Finland, Denmark, and in Sweden, for example, we, we see parties like the True Finns, who've actually been in government uh, for the last few years, that they've split, and, and, and the split-away group has remained in government while the main party has left it. Um, in Denmark, we have the DPP, the Danish People's Party, a, a very strongly anti-immigrant party, which has propped up the last government and was, which was dependent on it for votes in, in, in the parliament. And the Swedish uh, Democrats, who have emerged as a force, um, the second largest party in the, in the last uh, election and will be counted on uh, to, to, form, to form a government, whether they're in, in it or outside it. There are more traditional parties, well-established, like in Belgium, Vlaams Belang, a Flemish uh, nationalist party, which has been functioning for, for a couple of decades now quite strongly. In Holland, Gerd Wilders, uh, we've spoken of. Uh, in France, the Front National, which which did not win the last presidential election, but saw its uh, seats uh, increase quite dramatically in the, in the parliament. Um, and then in Italy, for example, we, we're uh, facing into an election there now where most of the parties likely to f make up the next government are very strongly anti-immigrant. Now, Berlusconi's party, for Forza Italia, is not, if you like, a traditional populist uh, far-right party, but it is probably going to have to uh, align with, its, uh, with the Northern League uh, which is openly um, racist. It's led by a man called Matteo Salvini. Um, and there's a group called Brothers of Italy, which are a smaller group, but they are openly fascist in the line, in the tradition of uh, Mussolini. Um, they're quite likely to be needed to make up the numbers if Berlusconi's party is going to make it. And the Five Star Movement, which is a sort of maverick 
party led by Beppe, or was led by Beppe Grillo, um, and uh, whose politics are strange amalgam of left and right, but uh, which is also very strongly anti-immigrant. It is now leading in, in the polls, and there are all sorts of combinations of on permutations of, what, of who will form the government in Italy, um, but uh, one of those, one or more of those parties, almost certain to be in there. And then you've got Austria, of course, where the Freedom Party, which was it had its roots in, in Nazism, uh, is now in government. And in Germany, the Alternative for Deutschland uh, did well in the elections, although not as well as as, as expected. But of course, uh, recent opinion polls have suggested now, after it took so long for the, the two mainstream parties in Germany to form a government, that the, the AFD, if, the, if there was an election tomorrow, could come very close to the SPD. So the, the AFD is essentially the main party of opposition now in Germany, isn't that right? I think, I think what's, what's interesting, in, particularly in relation to that, is that, is that parallel to this rise of the populist right, there's another political phenomenon happening throughout Europe, which has not been commented on as much, but which is just as significant. And this is the decline, and some would say terminal decline, of social democracy, of the traditional parties, the workers' parties of one kind or another. And the German social democrats in particular are, are facing a really torrid time. But you can see it everywhere, including in, in, in Ireland, where Labour has been has been pushed to the point of virtual extinction. Dan, in, in Budapest, um, as Paddy has just made clear, this is by no means a, an Eastern European phenomenon, but I think it's true that populists are strongest in the east of the continent. And again, could you give us a, a quick flavour of what countries we're talking about here and how big a foothold of populist parties gained in, in them? Well, probably the leader who's made the most headlines on the, on the populist front is Viktor Orban the Hungarian prime minister. Um, he's moved increasingly to the right, increasingly uh, deeper and deeper, you could say, into populism over the last 10 or 15 years, but particularly since the, the migration crisis of uh, 2015, when he built the fences on Hungary's border and he, um, he made the main platform of his, of his policy, really, uh, defending the nation, as he, said, as he puts it, from uh, a wave of migration, which he thinks could not only destroy uh, the security of Hungary and, and Europe, but its culture and its history and so on. Um, if you look uh, further to the south in, in Romania, you have the, the Social Democrat Party, which combines, uh, which actually sprang from the Communist Party at the end of the Communist period and combines some, uh, what you could say, what you could call left-wing social policies with uh, right-wing rhetoric and and most recently has started attacking the, um, the, 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 the checks and balances in democracy in Romania and also uh, increasing government control over, over the law courts, um, features which we've seen in, in Hungary in recent years as well. Um, if you look a bit further down there uh, to Bulgaria, you have uh, far-right parties in coalition with the, with the main ruling party. Um, and they bring a strong populist element to to policy making in Bulgaria. In the Czech Republic, you've had uh, we saw in the in the last month or so Miloš Zeman, um, a strongly Eurosceptic, strongly anti-immigration president, narrowly win a second term. Um, and in parliamentary elections last October, you saw 
the mainstream traditional parties in the Czech Republic really get a, a, a heavy beating from, from new parties which positioned themselves as an alternative to the political establishment. Um, the main beneficiary of that was the Anno party. It's led by um, a tycoon, the second richest man in the Czech Republic called Andrei Babish. Um, he's often compared to Trump. He's called the Czech Trump. Um, and he again combines strongly Eurosceptic and, and anti-immigration lines with um, a promise to um, defend the common man, if you like, in the Czech Republic and um, uh, and take power away from a political establishment, which over the years has become, uh, lots of people have become deeply disillusioned with due to a series of, of, of corruption scandals. So that's, uh, that's a broad outlook o over the region. If you look at former Yugoslavia as well, throughout the region, you have very strong populist elements, which most commonly play out um, in nationalist rhetoric and stirring up um, fear and security issues with, with the neighbors, obviously with the Balkan Wars only being, uh, being in the recent history, just in the 1990s, there's still lots of sensitivity around, uh, around regional relations and that makes that, that's fertile ground for populists to play on in former Yugoslavia. Now, I think Poland and Hungary, you both mentioned those countries, are, they're particularly significant here because both have placed themselves at odds with the rest of the European Union on, on a range of issues. Paddy, can you just tell us a little bit more about Poland? What exactly is the nature of the standoff between Warsaw and Brussels? It's critically about one issue, and that is the, the attempt by the Law and Justice Party to replace the uh, courts, the judges in the, in the courts, who they regard as unsympathetic to their view. And they've brought in laws which allow them to, to retire people and to sack them and to bring in new judges. Um, the European Union views this as an attack on the rule of law and have taken uh, proceedings against the Polish government under what's called Article 7 of, of the uh, EU treaties, which is a means, uh, and it's being only used for the first time, it's a means ultimately of of stripping the um, Polish government of its vote in European Union uh, meetings if the court process finds that they have indeed um, broken broken the treaty. And the, it is at the end of the day, though, voted on um, unanimously, has to be voted on unanimously by the Council of, of the European Union, the leaders. That makes it extremely unlikely that it will actually happen because the Hungarians have vowed to prevent anybody from doing anything to the Poles. And uh, so unanimity is impossible. But it's, it's humiliating for the, for the Poles uh, to be facing this, uh, this procedure for the first time. Uh, the other thing that the European Union is considering is in the context of the next uh, multi-annual budget, uh, a number of member states and indeed members of the Commission have, have strongly suggested that, that they should institute a form of conditionality in the structural funding uh, of the Union. In other words, to threaten to deprive member states who break the rules of the Union uh, from access to, to funds. Again, this will be very difficult to get through because it will probably require unanimity as well. But it, it is, it's unprecedented for the Union as a whole to be so uh, united in, in opposition to the domestic politics of, of uh, a member state. And, and Paddy, you mentioned there, it brings Stan back in, naturally, you mentioned how Hungary is a, a strong ally of Poland in, in this row. And Dan, Viktor Orban, the, the Prime Minister you mentioned earlier, 
Um, he makes no secret of his desire to undermine the established European liberal democratic order. In fact, he, he has come right out and said it and said he wants to build an illiberal democracy. What do you think he means by that? And, and where is Orban taking Hungary, do you think? Well, um, just a note on Poland as well. I mean, he sees Central Europe as being um, a sort of bastion of traditional European values, as he says it. He's, he's calling on Central European states, that's Poland, but also Czech Republic and Slovakia, to, uh, in the first case, to hold out against what he claims is a conspiracy between the European Union and George Soros, the um, Hungarian-born billionaire, to flood Europe with with refugees and migrants from the Middle East. So uh, he says that if we, if Europe is to defend and protect its traditional values, Central Europe has to stand up and do that. Uh, they must also stick together to uh, push back against what he calls bullying from Brussels. Uh, and from Berlin and potentially from Paris as well. Um, so he does see this as a potential second um, uh, centre of power, if you like, in the European Union, something that can resist what he calls the um, the European Union establishment, the European Union mainstream, some, uh, uh, something that he believes has become too liberal in recent years. Um, I mean, he, he is clashed with the European Union on on several counts. Um, The European Union is taking Hungary, Poland and the Czech Republic to court over their refusal to accept quotas of refugees. Um, But the European Union is also taking uh, Hungary to the European Court of Justice over um, uh, moves to tighten control over NGOs in Hungary and also education reform, which looks to critics like a direct attack on the Central European University which was founded uh, in the early post-communist years by George Soros and is still funded by George Soros and is seen as a kind of bastion of liberal values in the region. So across all these areas, um, Orban finds himself in conflict with what he calls the liberal liberal elite um, and um, increasingly with the European Union. The big question is, of course, what the European Union can do about any of this and how closely Central European countries will bind together, will stick together and defend each other um, in the face of potential pressure from from Brussels. Hungary is different from Poland in some respects. I mean, it's a much smaller population. Its economy is more reliant on exports to EU states. It really kind of relies more on the, on the European Union, I think, than than Poland, which is maybe capable of being a little more self-sufficient. Do you, do you think Brussels has more leverage there that they could be using um, to tr- try to bring Orban back into line? Uh, potentially. I mean, Hungary is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, per capita beneficiaries of, of European Union funding. Um, and it's a, it's a major uh, threat to him um, uh, and, and the system that he has created in Hungary, if there is, as, as time goes on, uh, any linkage made by the European Union between an adherence to rule of law and, and European Union values and future EU funding. This is something that we see increasingly in uh, comments made by Orban himself and by um, and by his allies, other top officials here in Hungary. They say it would absolutely be unfair and wrong and a danger to the future of the European Union if funding was threatened. Um, and I think, as Paddy mentioned there, um, he is trying to form an increasing, a, a stronger and stronger uh, um uh, alliance with Poland to try and face down any prospect of that when it comes to the the uh, talks on on the next budget for the European Union in years to come. 
And Paddy, just briefly, that question to you as well. I mean, why do you think Brussels maybe is not using this, this leverage that it would appear to have over Hungary? Well, the problem is that it is constrained by its own rules, which, which require unanimity. And Article 7 is actually a, a rather toothless uh, implement. Um, one of the important things for, for Brussels, I, I th- and I think it's something that, that should be understood, is that the reason uh, that they are taking such a strong line is that there is a strong sense here that the European Union must become identified by citizens throughout the Union, not just as, a, as an economic entity, not just as a trading bloc interested only in markets, but as a political union based on common shared democratic values. And so the inability to use Article 7 against Poland and Hungary is very frustrating. Uh, I, I don't see how they're going to get around it, uh, but I, I don't see any likelihood there will be any lessening of pressure from Brussels. Ruan, I might bring you back in here. Um, what would you say have been the consequences to date um, of this rise in, in populism in Europe? At the domestic level, the consequences are clear. Dan and Paddy have outlined how in Poland and Hungary and elsewhere in Europe, it's had a direct effect on policymaking, particularly in countries where the populist right is in power and has control of the levers of government. But there are other categories of influence too. Think of countries where populist parties are in coalition. Coalition governments are the norm uh, across much of Europe. In Austria, for example, we have the Freedom Party in government. In the UK, we have the DUP in alliance with the Conservative Party. Its influence is felt in that way. Um, So even without necessarily running a country, you can see how the influence of the, the populist right is affecting economic and social policy. But even without attaining power, I mean, France is a good example of a country where even without even having seats in the National Assembly, the National Front was able to reorient the political discussion around its its own rhetoric and re- around its own goals. You know, so Marine Le Pen, after taking over the National Front, refashioned the party to become a sort of a, um, you know, a protectionist, uh, a protectionist, economically quite left wing party that was really strong in the uh, you know, in the old industrial heartlands, where previously the National Front had been concentrated in the middle classes in the, in the southwest of the country. She refashioned the party and without um, making any sort of impression in National Assembly elections, partly because of the system they operate in France, um, you know, she was able to change the direction of the center, the main centre-right bloc in particular under Nicolas Sarkozy, because his response to the National Front threat was to mimic a lot of its rhetoric and to adopt a lot of its policies. Um, and there are other countries in which you can you can see that that too. So the AFD has managed to you know, influence the debate in Germany without having any um, control of any any ministry, for example. I mean, we've seen Angela Merkel have, has had to harden her line on, on immigration. Um, exactly, really. because the centre of gravity in, in German politics on a lot of issues has shifted to the, to the right. So there's clearly these domestic impacts that we can see. And of course, it has a a big effect on how immigrants are seen and how other social debates are are conducted. But there's also a, a European Union impact. Um, you know, looking beyond what the European Union can do in the case of Poland and Hungary and their perceived transgressions, you look at how the European Union is struggling to come up with a, a coherent, united policy, say, on the Middle East on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So when Donald Trump late last year recognised Jerusalem as the capital of of uh, Israel. There was an attempt within the European Union to put out a statement to take a common position condemning it. That was opposed by the Czech Republic and and Hungary. And as a result, no common statement went out. And you can see that uh, the Israelis, for example, are are looking to use that divide within the European Union to put pressure on the the centre of the EU. So 
um, Benjamin Netanyahu last summer attended the uh, summit, I think it was in Budapest, of the Visegrad group um, before Central European states, including Hungary and Poland, as well as the Czech Republic and, and Slovakia, and invited to, them to Israel to have their next meeting next this year in, in, in Tel Aviv. Um, so you can see how, you know, resistance, opposition from just two states can have quite a significant effect on the EU's ability to form common policies uh, in important areas. It's also probably going to stymie any attempt, remote though it was, um, to uh, recognise the state of Palestine. So there's a, a small clutch of EU states that, that are ready to go now, including Ireland, Portugal's another one, um, Slovenia, Luxembourg, maybe a, a handful of others. There's a group in the middle who would go if France and Germany were willing to, to go now. And then there's a small group of states that are adamantly opposed to it. And that happens to be the group of states that we've been talking about most this morning, Poland, Hungary, and, and the Czech Republic, for example, notably. Um, and the danger for the European Union is if you punish these group, these countries collectively, if you, um, you know, impose cuts to their budget, for example, there's two effects. One is that you you make an alliance of them. You encourage the sort of the, the grouping of them together and you encourage them to, to, to find common cause against the centre of the EU. But you also punish the people, you punish the voters. So by implementing cuts to structural funds, you're cutting back the money for regional development that's available to ordinary ordinary voters in Hungary or Poland or wherever else. And the danger for the EU is that they don't make that distinction between the government and the people. You know, remember, there's a lot of young Poles and Hungarians in particular who still look to the European Union. I mean, Poles in both of these countries show the strong support for remaining in the European Union. A lot of young people in these two countries look to the European Union as, you know, a part of their future, part of their identity. And the danger is that by punishing ordinary voters, you push them further into the arms of the populists. Paddy? Um, I think that one of the other peculiar foreign policy implications of, of uh, the growth of the, the far right is, is paradoxically the strengthening of Russia, because many of them are actually open allies of, of Putin. Um, this is not so of Poland, but certainly a number number of other countries in, in Central and Eastern Europe, and a number of these parties, like the French National Front, have close links with uh, with the Russians and uh, are opposed to sanctions against Russia. Uh, so they are, they are creating quite a significant problem. Um, actually, Dan, I might bring you in at that point, because that is something I was going to raise with you. you, you you've been a long-time observer of Russia as well. And as Paddy just mentioned there, you know, one of the um, kind of effects, I suppose, we've seen or things we've seen in recent years in, in among some European, Eastern European countries is as they draw themselves a little bit away from Brussels, they tend to draw themselves a little more into Moscow's orbit. Do you see Russia's hand sort of actively at play here? You know, is the Kremlin sort of manipulating some of this or, or, or do you think that would be a conspiracy theory too far? Uh, I think the Kremlin's certainly happy to, to see these divisions uh, emerging and expanding in Europe. Um, I don't think that the, the the countries that we've been talking about are necessarily, I mean, the governments that we've been talking about are consulting with Moscow in terms of policy. But um, certainly when you look at what, what's Russia's main um, ambition when it comes to the European Union, uh, European Union and NATO, it is to, to, uh, to divide it, to uh, separate countries off from each other and to deal with them on an individual basis in, in, uh, and in terms of individual issues. I mean, if we look at, say, uh, Orban and um, the Czech president Zeman, they've both been very critical of, of European Union sanctions on Russia. Um, and 
Zeman has openly said that Ukraine should just accept the fact that, that Russia has annexed Crimea and it should get on with it and at best maybe seek some compensation. Um, when you look at the messaging that comes from Russia, you know, there's so much talk now about uh, Russia's use of, of social media and fake news to uh, influence opinion in different countries. Um, and it certainly uses these key issues, uh, the same kinds of issues that the populists focus on to try and sow division in European Union countries. So if we look at the way um, the chief Russian messaging when it comes to uh, Czech Republic and Hungary, for example, they will focus on uh, the migration crisis. They will focus on perceived supposed dangers from uh, refugees coming and settling in the country. Um, they will focus on um, questions of NATO membership, whether NATO membership exposes these countries to uh, to dangers in, in to danger in in the event of worsening relations between East and West. Um, and I think in in a, in broader terms, if we talk about these countries and these leaders uh, undermining democratic values. If we look at some of the things that they're doing in terms of putting pressure on civil society, pressure on free media, pressure on uh, opposition parties, um, uh, channeling funds and state contracts to friendly businessmen, all these are kinds of things that we see happening in Russia as well. And if European Union members are doing these very same things, it undoubtedly weakens the European Union's hand and the European Union's standing if it wants to criticize Russia on, on these particular issues. So uh, in all these different ways, the rise of populism um, and the divisions that it's causing in, uh, in, within the European Union, they all play into the Kremlin's hand in, in, uh, in various different ways. And on a, on a related point, Dan, while we're talking about Russia, are we finding out here to some extent that some of the countries that came out of decades of communist rule, that they don't have, and go back to Hungary, for example, that it doesn't have sufficiently strong democratic institutions to resist the rise of a strong man like Viktor Orban. Or is that a fair analysis to make? Uh, absolutely. It's something that I've encountered speaking to uh, liberal politicians, think tanks, NGOs around the region. Um, uh, many of them say that actually we didn't realize that that our institutions were still so weak. Um you know, we're, when we look at the, the transition after 89, they say that, um, you know, we took on a lot of the trappings of Western democracy and we built institutions that uh, looked to us like they were functioning in the same way as the Western in institutions, but they weren't really underpinned by civil society and by um, an understanding among the people of what it meant to be a citizen in a democratic state. So uh, they say that it's... It, that this uh, lack of a deep foundation for these institutions has made it very easy for populists to um, to exploit that weakness and to uh, to co-opt and and in some cases sweep away these institutions um, when they found that that serves their own political purposes. And Paddy, I might just come back to you on a point. Ruan there was talking about the consequences, you know, to date of this rise in populism. I'd be interested in getting your view on potential future consequences because I, I think a, fe a feature of populist parties tends to be that many of them favor the preeminence of the nation state over, you know, the collective um, um, entity such as the European Union. So is there a threat here to the European integration project? Where do you see, how do you see all of this impacting on the future of the European Union in general? Yeah, I think I think it's an interesting question because what you're seeing emerging is uh, certainly Eurosceptical parties 
and strengthening of Eurosceptical parties. But they're not Eurosceptical in the same sense as UKIP in Britain, for example. They're not, by and large, calling for disaffiliation from the European Union. Um, the two Italian parties, the Northern League and the Five Star Movement, who have spoken about abandoning the euro, have actually retreated from that position during the election campaign. And, but it doesn't mean that they will support European integration, and they will be a thorn in the side of um, ministers and leaders who are trying to push forward the integration process. So it's important decisions to be taken on issues like banking union and the, the, the future of the single currency. And those will be more difficult with, with governments hostile to that process in power in, in places like Austria and, and probably in Italy uh, as well. We're kind of running out of time. And just to, to wrap it up, I was going to um, come back to something Ruan mentioned a moment ago, which was uh, in the danger of when you take on maybe some of these countries of annoying the voters who put these parties in power. Um, and I'm kind of conscious that we've had this entire discussion on the possibly on the basis that populism is a is a negative thing. But I mean, is it really a negative thing if these parties are coming to power on the basis of strong democratic mandates from mandates from from voters? I'm going to throw that one out to the three of you. And if anyone has a view on that, um, dive in. I might go first. I mean, I think it's a good question. What the, the, the bigger question is what, and, and it's an important question for any mainstream centrist party that has to come up with a response to this threat. You know, what lessons do you learn? Um, if we're to pick, I mean, there's one example in Europe in the last couple of years of a politician who directly did take on the populist right and, and succeeded. Now, we can debate how temporary or permanent that success will prove to be, but I'm talking about Emmanuel Macron in France. What happened in France over several years was that both right and left ran scared of the National Front. Nicolas Sarkozy, as I mentioned, mimicked its rhetoric, adopted a lot of its policies. François Hollande ignored it almost completely. And the result was the same. The National Front's vote kept on rising. What Macron did was, I think, he did two things. Firstly, he, fashioned, he created a new party, which enabled him to cast himself as the outsider and the insurgent force. Now, leave to one side the fact that in many ways Macron epitomizes the, the Parisian elite, but it, it enabled him, and also by bringing in a lot of um, amateurs, a lot of people who hadn't been involved in politics before, it enabled him to insulate himself from that charge that he represented the old guard and the sclerotic two-party system that France had had since the war. But I think the second thing he did was to take on the, the, the populists at their own um, at their own arguments. So, you know, not to run scared from them, but rather to try to put together a grand narrative that argued for free trade, that argued for European Union membership, that argued that membership of in international institutions amplified France's voice uh, and to do it confidently. It so happened that he was a very good candidate and that, um, you know, he didn't have a party history or, or much of a party history as well. But I think, and he's talked about this himself a lot, he he recognised or believed that, you know, the 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 big idealists today are the populists, the people with the grand vision. And it might not be a particularly coherent vision, it might not be an attractive vision, but that people yearn for a big idea. Um, and Michael D. Higgins, the president of Ireland, has said exactly the same thing, that people yearn for an idea that's bigger than, than themselves. And what he tried to do, he says, was to put together a, a narrative that was just as coherent and that 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 felt like like a, a, a big idea. So I think there are lessons that, you know, mainstream, mainstream parties can learn. They need to look at questions arising out of globalization and automation and, you know, the alienation that big sections of society feel and they need to come up with solutions. Those solutions uh, won't be the same ones as the populist right, but, you know, it's important to, to come up with solution, solutions of their own. That was the lesson, I suppose, of Macronism. I would say, uh, if I could come in there. Yes, Dan. Um, I'd say 
it, it's certainly noticeable in, in Hungary and the Czech Republic and I think in Poland too that uh, the populist leaders we've been talking about have come to power on the back of a collapse of the of the centre-centre-left former socialist parties. Um, they've all been discredited, they've broken off into splinter movements, uh, they don't have um, the kind of vision that Ruan was talking about now to try and inspire and unite people, they don't have any particularly strong leaders. And the danger is in all these countries that the populist leaders that we have in power now could potentially rig the system, if you like, in different ways to make it incredibly hard for these these uh, center-left parties to get back into power at any future date. Um, if we look at um, where these countries might go in future and how far they may be willing to take their confrontation with the EU, um, a lot of them... Uh, well, certainly, if we look at, at Zeman and we, if we look at Orban, they, I think they play with this. Uh, they they try and play this Russian card and suggest that okay, if the EU puts too much much pressure on us, we can turn away from the West and look east. But that really isn't realistic, um, and I think they know that. Um, the thing that they really don't want to lose is European Union membership and 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 the uh, the huge funding that it brings to each of these countries. It would be an absolute disaster for them. They know it, and I think ultimately the electorates know it. Um, so they may try and play the Russian card, but they know that really still the only game in town for all these countries is still the European Union. And Paddy, final word to yourself. Uh, yeah, I think I, I'm unhappy with the word populism and the context, the discussion and the context of populism. I, I think the idea of listening to the people more is, is probably a, a good thing. But I don't think what we're talking about here as a phenomenon is, is, is really about that. It's about the rise of a form of scapegoating, which is very damaging and very dangerous, xenophobic, anti-Islam, anti-immigrant, and playing on the fears that people have from decline of, of manufacturing industry, for example, of the rise of terrorism, playing on those fears, blaming the foreigners. This is a very dangerous road that we're taking people down, and uh, it, it simply has to be fought. Paddy in Brussels and Dan in Budapest and Ruan here in the studio. Thanks again for that. That's all for this week. For more on this and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.